Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and we have such a special guest for you guys today. I'm very, very excited. We are being joined by Zach Silver, who is a doctoral student at Yale University in Dr. Lori Santos's lab, and he earned his undergraduate degree in psychology and music, which I think is incredibly cool, <laughs> at Illinois Wesleyan University. And his research is what we're going to talk about, and it's focused on how non-humans learn from and about humans and the effects of formal training on sociocognitive development. Now, that's a really big word, but basically what it means is we're going to talk about how dogs learn, which I think is fascinating. And we also have Dr. Judy Stella here. She is our head of standard and research here at Good Dog. And this is going to be a fabulous conversation. So welcome, everybody. Super glad to have you join us. Hey, thanks. So, Zach, let's just start off by just telling us a bit about the Yale Canine Cognition Lab. What is it and what are you all doing there? Absolutely. So the general aim of our lab is to enhance our understanding of how humans and how non-human animals experience the social world. We compare what we know about humans and in particular developing human populations like infants and young toddlers to this new research that we're collecting about our closest social relatives, domestic dogs. So what makes dogs such a great sample for our studies here is that dogs have a shared social environment with us. So all of the same social factors that shape the way that we as humans develop and learn and experience everything in our environment, dogs are exposed to all of that same information. It makes them a perfect species to test these questions of what's uniquely human versus what's a product of our social environment. Right. And we're able to do some of this by testing animals that are locally owned just by families in the New Haven area. They bring their dogs into the lab where they play a series of games with us. These games mm-hmm. are designed to test how dogs experience these social questions. They range everywhere from simply like following cues from us, like we'll point to a place where food's hidden and see if dogs can track that information, all the way to really complex questions, like if dogs can represent these rich concepts of things like who is nice and who's mean or who's competent and who's incompetent. And that's, I think you answered my second question, which what is comparative psychology? And that is what it is. We're comparing different species and how they learn and learn social cues. Correct? Exactly. And we can take this approach through really a variety of avenues. Most commonly, historically, was to compare humans to species that share a common ancestor with us. These are our close phylogenetic relatives, namely chimpanzees and bonobos, species that are you know, very closely linked to us evolutionarily. When we can identify differences between us and those closely related species, we can say, well, these things are maybe a more recent adaptation and we're not shared by a common ancestor. This is really only half of the question, though, because it's not just what happened in the past. There's also an important element of what's currently happening in a human lifespan and in the lifespan of an animal who shares that environment with humans. So by testing dogs and really any species who shares the social environment with humans, we're able to get this really important insight into the second half of that question, which is the role of environment. And in the case of dogs in particular, maybe their domestication history and how evolving alongside humans could shape the way that they think. Yeah. 
So you're studying cognition. And so this is always fascinating to me, like how things think, how individuals see the world around them. But when we think about cognition, we typically or historically would just think about cognition as like dogs are, how do they rank amongst other animals or how do individuals rank amongst themselves? And it was sort of like this unitary thing, cognition, cognitive ability. But what we're finding is that there's different types of cognition. So can you tell us a little bit about the different types of cognition that have been identified in dogs? Absolutely. So when we think about dogs very broadly, dogs really have cognition that can be divided into two really important categories. The first being social cognition, the second being physical cognition. The social cognition, that really encompasses any time that dogs are making inferences about the social world. So anytime they're making a judgment about a person, taking information that's being presented to them from a person and using that to solve a problem. And now it's a very broad umbrella still. It kind of defines a lot of dog behavior because a lot of dog behavior is really involving these references to humans and learning about us and from us. The other slice of this physical cognition is when dogs are sort of operating on their own without us. They are able to rely on their really acute sense of smell and hearing and their unique sensory suites, which allow them to navigate the world in a way that is really unique to dogs. And what's really interesting about your question there is that cognition isn't something that we can look at linearly. All species sort of have a different little psychological niche that makes them cognitively distinct. For instance, there are things that dogs do that are way more sophisticated than what we could do with their nose and with their hearing. And then there are things that they do that are really just approximations of what we do. Like they get parts of these like rich social learning categories that are really important for humans that we do obviously much better than them. But no two species are alike and dogs are really unique in the sense that they have a lot of the human-like social cognition. In fact, maybe the most human-like social cognition of any animal that we've studied. And Zach, I think that that is fascinating, right, Judy? I think it is absolutely incredible. So kind of spinning off what Judy said, everybody wants to know what's the smartest dog. So that's kind of where we're going. Is a Border Collie smarter than a Poodle, right? And so I think what's fascinating about what you guys are doing is how these dogs learn. And it's different, yes? So the question of which breeds are the smartest is actually a very complicated question Mm -hmm. and comes down to actually the same sort of general approach as what we're talking about when we can't compare species in this linear way. We can't do the same thing with breeds. All breeds have these sort of differently adapted intelligences, which seem to be a product of the very unique domestication circumstances with which those breeds originated. So breeds that were bred for herding, for instance, Mm -hmm. tend to be really effective independent problem solvers because they mostly do their work on their own. They go off and they are you know, really excellent at the tasks that they are bred to do. This translates well into really strong physical reasoning and spatial reasoning, and they're able to solve tasks that you might not expect a Labrador retriever to be able to solve. Retrievers, on the other hand, because they have this cooperative relationship that's really integral to the way that they work, they're awesome at following social cues. This is part of the reason why you see like most service dogs tend to be retriever breeds or labs of some sort because they are so closely attending to everything that we do and say, and they pick up on our social cues so effectively. So it's not that one breed is smarter than the other, just that they have these differently equipped intelligences that really help them navigate their very unique slice of the social world that they're designed to interact with. Right. And I'm going to go a little sideways with this, because this, I think, is so cool. Taking that information, how does that apply to how a person chooses the best dog for their family? That's a great question. When thinking about what dog suits an individual or a family, um, right. it's important to think about like what is that dog's history and how well will that dog be able to live out the types of experiences that they're best equipped to do with you. 
So if, for instance, if you are someone who lives on a large plot of land and you can set up a situation where your dog can carry out those quasi herding type of behaviors and solve a lot of problems on their own, like a herding breed is perfect for you. That obviously does not apply to everybody. And, you know, I think for the average person, these dogs that tend to be really intricately aware of what we want from them, these dogs make great companions for anyone. So, I mean, my personal favorite breeds are lab mixes and labs of any kind. I have a lab here with me in New Haven. I also have a lab back home in Chicago that lives with my parents. And they're both awesome dogs. One thing I've noticed just in living with these animals is that they pay attention to everything I do and they learn what I want, even when I'm not trying to teach them what I want. They pick up on my behavior so quickly. So definitely for an experienced dog owner, labs are amazing. But really, if you just want a dog who's going to adapt to your lifestyle, I think that's a great fit. Right. And you just touched on something that I had on my list of things I wanted to talk about. And I think that that what you just said is so important. Every interaction we have with our dogs teaches them something, whether it's what we want them to learn or not, and sometimes not. (laughs) So can you talk about what you're learning in your research that gives people kind of guiding principles for what they need to understand when they're teaching their dogs some simple life skills? So there's a couple of really important threads within this question of how dogs learn. I think the first one is when dogs are in this, what we could call like a learning mode. And we can activate this in dogs by giving them signals, which we call in the scientific community, ostensive cues. So these are things that we can do that communicate to a dog, hey, listen, it's time for you to learn from me. And dogs have a really uniquely adapted system to detect these cues in humans. So these are actually very simple. They are making eye contact with your dog. They're speaking in that like dog-friendly, higher-pitched voice. Anything that you do that communicates to your dog, like, hey, listen, you got to pay attention to me right now. This activates a dog's system of like, okay, time to take in information and learn about this. And what's really cool about this is that's the same way that humans know when it's time to learn. So if you're talking to a baby or a young infant, you do the same things to get their attention and put them into this learning mode, so to speak. You make eye contact with them. You speak in that like higher pitch. We call it infant-directed speech. Then we're talking to infants. And the same is true of dogs. So Dogs and humans share this really like interesting conduit for which they activate this mode of okay time to learn. So once you get your dog into this ostensive cueing ready information intake mindset, now dogs are going to pay really, really close attention to every cue you give off. So if you want your dog to learn how to do something in that time, you have to be extra careful that you're not accidentally sending any of the wrong signals. (laughs) If you want your dog to sit and then they get a treat when you're in that mode, and you reinforce the wrong behavior, like you reinforce a barking behavior or something like that, well, that dog's going to keep barking because they were in this like, okay, it's learning time. I barked, I got a treat. And what's interesting about this is this is associated learning. So this is something where they are making a connection between one behavior that they do, or maybe something that you do, and then an outcome. So this really dates back to a lot of the early behavior psychology that comes from like Watson and Skinner, And this is true of humans, and it's also true of a variety of other animals. Most animals can learn through these paired associations. So if there's an action that's produced and it has an outcome, that will be remembered, and then that strengthens the likelihood of that response occurring again. So if a dog gets a positive result from any behavior that they do, they will do that behavior again. (laughs) Right. And, I mean, a positive result to a dog is not necessarily the same thing we think is a positive result. So a positive result for a dog can just be attention. Right? Oh, absolutely. So if they bark uh, incessantly and you give them attention for barking incessantly, is that something that you found? 
So this is not something I study in particular, but the kind of current state of literature on this would suggest that any type of reinforcement the dogs receive, so attention per se is maybe not such a strong predictor of future behavior. But one thing I think is a common trap that we might fall into when training our animals. If your dog's barking a lot and you tell a dog to stop barking and then you say, oh, good job, you stopped barking and you're giving the dog a bunch of praise at that time, you're really missing a very important link, which is that barking led to the praise. And there's actually some really interesting research that says that some dogs are more attuned to praise-based rewards than they are food-based rewards. Yes. So this is a case where you might have accidentally taught your dog, all you have to do to get some praise is to start doing the thing I don't want you to do and then stop. <laughs> That's where I was so, going with that. And I love that. <laughs> and again, this is like a really powerful shaping mechanism for canine right. behavior, but it can't explain all of canine behavior. And that's where, kind of where some of my research comes in with how dogs are just learning through observation of us, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on. And that's actually where I was going next. And the one I wanted to pull back that thread also was that developing together over the millennia. And so would love to dig down into that a little bit in terms of how dogs learn and how that development together shaped that. I will start by saying there's a lot that we don't know about dog domestication. There's a lot of question marks here. And then there's a lot of researchers who have devoted their entire careers to trying to answer those questions, which is a very noble pursuit. And I hope that we do find the answers to those questions someday. So the kind of current prevailing view on what happens to a dog's mind during domestication is that as dogs evolved from wolves and started interacting with us more and more, we sort of selected for the dogs that were most tolerant of us. So the dogs who are willing to come hang out with us and you know not try to take our food, not try to attack us as a non-domesticated wolf might do, these dogs actually had a really positive life outcome. Because we kept them around. We said, you know, I I like this four-legged creature who hangs out with me and doesn't really cause problems for my day-to-day existence. So the initial, like, very first step of domestication was really just that. It was, like, which things aren't a threat to us and can we safely have around without really posing a problem or some kind of negative outcome for us. Now, the result of this over several generations, this became an evolutionarily advantageous adaptation for these animals. like If you're around the people and the people share their food with you and keep you safe from different threats in the environment, you're probably going to live a long time, have a high chance of reproducing and passing down your genes to the next generation. So we see more and more of these kind of proto-dogs emerging that are tolerant of humans. But then a very important second step happened, which is the relationship then became a cooperative one, where it wasn't just we'll kind of coexist separately and neither of us will kill each other. Instead, it became something more important, which is that we can mutually help each other survive, whereas dogs dramatically increased our capacity for hunting and gathering. This is kind of the earliest example of a dog-human cooperative relationship where we worked together with dogs to help us find prey and be able to feed ourselves and in turn feed them. And it impacted both us and them in a very important way. And we fast forward now probably about 40,000 years to the present. And this cooperative relationship is still very prevalent in dogs. And it sort of defines everything about their social cognition and the way that they approach the social world. They are primed for cooperation with us. And that's why they're so good at learning from us. I love that. So talk to us a little bit more about that social learning, because I think that that, like the learning by watching, I just love that. I think that is such a fascinating topic. And if I'm understanding correctly, it goes to the research that you're looking at. They can even decide 
which type of human they're going to pick. You mentioned it earlier, the mean one or the nice one. Like, how do they do that? And how do we tell the dog we're the nice one? (laughs) So this is actually a trait that is really early emerging in the human species. From about five months of age, you'll see this Mm -hmm. preference for, we call them like pro-social individuals. These are people who are helpful. They share, they help other people achieve their goals compared to antisocial individuals. Operationally, these are the mean people. So they hoard things for themselves. They, They don't let you achieve your goals. They stop you from doing the things that you want to do. We can make this comparison to salient to humans in a variety of ways. And if you see this presented to infants, it'll mostly be like a puppet show where like there's a puppet who's trying to ascend a hill. The nice person kind of helps them push up the rest of the way up. The mean person pushes them back down to the bottom. Very simple, straightforward. And after seeing this, infants as young as five months old show a very strong preference for the nice individual. And this makes sense. You know, we as humans do like nice people. It's very cool to see this emerges so early. So my question was, do dogs do this as well? Because if all of what we know about dogs could support this argument, but it should, right? If dogs share our social cognition in a variety of ways, they potentially share our preferences for new people. So the way that we test this in dogs is we just show dogs a very similar scenario. We show dogs someone trying to achieve a goal. In this case, it was me standing in a little boxed-in area. And I was reaching for a clipboard. I just couldn't quite reach it. My arm wasn't quite long enough. And a very nice person we'll call that person the helper, would come up and they would hand me the clipboard. So this is something like the dog shouldn't care about a clipboard necessarily. Like they don't want the clipboard. They're just watching that I wanted the clipboard and this person helped me get it. And other times dogs see me reaching for the clipboard and a very mean person comes up and they move the clipboard farther away from me. And again, the situation is not inherently salient to dogs. Like they shouldn't be impacted by my success or my failures. Mm -hmm. But they saw these two people behave in their very different ways, a nice and a mean person. And then we just have both of those people sit down and we see who the dog wants to go spend their time with. And what we found is that in the right circumstances, dogs are able to differentiate between this nice person and the mean person. And they do go interact with the nice person more frequently which is really cool for us as psychologists because it seems like this is not a uniquely human adaptation to favor kind individuals, but instead something that might arise from a shared social environment. So either through domestication or through dog social environment, we somehow enlisted this thought in them to prefer nice people. Okay. So now I have so many questions. So, (laughs) (laughs) right. So we talk about Judy and you know what I'm going to say. We talk about dogs read body language. As dog people, we talk about that all the time. So does your helper and your mean person, does the nice person and the mean person, do they have different faces in terms of facial expressions? Do they have different body posture? Do they have different voice tones? So we actually take very careful care to make sure that all those things are exactly the same. So both of those people are standing in the same posture. They're making the same facial expression. They even speak in the same timbre of voice. I really want to make sure they're attending only to the action and not to any other superficial cue. So I just want to know, these are adult dogs that you're testing, correct? Yes. Okay. So do you know like what their history is and their ontogeny? So like are more socialized dogs or just socialization at an early age impact how they view this or is it something that they're born with? So we have some preliminary data that might help answer that question, although I don't have a full picture quite yet. It seems like dogs that are highly trained and In this case, highly trained, these are dogs who competed in agility competitions. Mm -hmm. So it's not that like agility in particular matters, just the prospect of being highly trained. These dogs were substantially better at this task than dogs who didn't have any formal training. 
So this tells us that there's a couple of different explanations for this, which I won't go into all of them because it is very complicated, very much in the weeds of like of social cognition and cognitive development. But one possible explanation, which is the one I like the best, is that the process of training is teaching dogs, they have to pay really close attention to what people do. So if I'm teaching you as a dog to compete in an agility competition, or even just to be like a dog who is well-behaved and living in my household, the dog knows, okay, I got to pay really close attention to this person. He's all the time teaching me things and doing things I have to pay attention to. And this has some carryover into just the way that they view the general social world. When they're watching new situations where, you know, it is a very new and certainly not something I've seen before, they're just seeing the situation for the first time and these new people, and they're paying really close attention now. They're hyper-focused on these people's actions because they need to take in information, decide how they should approach this new situation. Okay, so Zach, I'm going to follow up, and I think this is where Judy was going to. <laughs> As dog breeders, we know that dogs have learning phases very earlier in their life, far earlier than many people realized, right? So we understand that. And many dog breeders focus on that, what we call early socialization and teaching basically that the puppies learn how to learn, not mm -hmm. that they learn so much a skill. So I wonder, I hypothesize, I'm not a very good scientist, but I'm going to go with hypothesize. I wonder if the dogs that are competing in agility come from breeders who did that early socialization and you're seeing that, right, okay, your eyebrow just went. <laughs> that's certainly a possibility. I think that's actually a very strong possibility. So I speculate that some of these early experiences are shaping behavior in the adult dogs that we're seeing in these studies. So one of the ways this could be happening is that it just so happens that dogs who are successful at competing in agility competitions had the correct early life experiences that made them good at attending the social cues and hyper-focused on humans. And as a result, they're great at detecting who's nice and who's mean. So again, I don't think it's about agility per se. I think that it likely stems from some broader attention to, to humans. Unfortunately, we don't have the data yet to know if that is the answer. I think the next frontier of this project is to take a smaller, younger sample and try to understand how dogs will develop this trait over time and what type of early life experiences are important for the development of this trait as, as an adult. That, right there, because that's what I would love to see research on that. And we haven't really touched on this, and I want to bring it back to it just really quick as we wrap things up. The citizen science aspect of this, you're working with people who just volunteer to come in with their dogs. And I love that. And I know Judy and I are both thinking the same thing. Any science, any actual research that we had that says, this is what I should do with my three-week-old to eight-week-old puppy to make it a better dog at this level, like on actual research, sciencey stuff, I think would be fabulous. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the sort of untapped frontiers of comparative cognition up to this point has been looking at like, what can we do to maximize the animal's success in life? And success yes. can be defined in a lot of ways, but I think for most people, it means like, let's have our dogs be really happy and really enjoy working with us in cooperative contexts and living in our households. I really do think that testing younger dogs and trying to identify what are some of the cognitive attributes that need to be present early to have dogs exhibit all the traits we want to see in adulthood, I think is a really important future direction for us. I think we can all agree that your dog being able to pick out who's nice is a really good outcome. You know, we don't want your dog to be taking a liking to bad people. So as a result, what do we have to do to make your dog behave this way later in life? 
I think there's a lot of options there and definitely a lot of really interesting avenues for future research. Excellent. Oh my gosh. Okay. Zach, I could literally talk to you all day, but we do have a time check here. So thank you so very much. And I hope to pick your brain again at some point. My pleasure. I'd love to come back sometime and talk more about this. Excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is G-O-O-D-D-O-G dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.